just try to be curious at all costs. Taking things on a whim, like going out to random events, just being at a clinic and being around people and surrounding yourself with the people in those environments. I wasn't in a situation too long ago where I was the only guy at a clinic that didn't have a aim on my polo and I couldn't get a call back from a D3 GA spot. Like situations like that where, well, over time, you know, if you keep sticking to this thing, it's great. You got to be willing to dive in somewhere, like sink or swim, you know, wherever level you want to be at, you got to be all in. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we are excited to welcome assistant coach for the G League's Long Island Nets, Jimmy Oakman. Coach Oakman is here today to discuss rules versus standards, the art and science of efficient scouting reports, and we talk NBA Summer League and Monday morning quarterbacks during the always fun start, sub, or sit. A big thank you to the coaches and staffs from around the world who've joined SG Plus this summer. Your support helps us continue to provide the highest quality content we can. Listeners of the podcast can receive 10% off the membership by entering the code SG10 at checkout. Visit slappingglass.com for more information on all that's included in the membership. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Jimmy Oakman. Coach, thanks so much for coming on. We're really excited to talk to you today. Guys, this is an honor. Obviously, I watched you guys from the get-go with everything and seeing how this has evolved. It's an honor to be here and talk with you guys, talk some hoops and share some thoughts and you know, hopefully give some information to people that are listening. We appreciate that. Thank you. Let's dive right in. So especially as a younger coach, a lot of times when you're, let's say, in a head coach role, trying to establish control of the team, and sometimes you can fall into having too many rules versus standards. And what have you found over the years of striking that balance between rules versus standards on a team? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think something I've learned is the less rules that you have for your team, the general more cohesion they have, and they're not going to willing to push. If you have a rule, the player is going to push that boundary. So if you have very simplistic standards, like, hey, we're going to be on time and we're going to be about the team first, and that's all we care about. And then all of a sudden you can bucket those into anything. Hey, like, you know, you took a selfish shot. Well, that wasn't about the team first. Or, you know, like, hey, film is at three o'clock. You came at 2.59, like you're not late, but, you know, everybody else is here at 2.55. And so you start to let it kind of be its own thing. And, you know, if you got a list of 30, you know, rules. I've seen it. I've been a part of it. Well, they broke rules 26 through 30. And we're like, well, that's not really important. So the second that you don't put value on rule 30, they're not going to care about number one either. It's the same thing like in basketball, like scouting report, right? If you tell them 30 things, all 30 can't be equally as important. So same thing with the rules. I think you need to be very careful about it and just kind of understand what's a complete non-negotiable and what can we live with? Not everybody's equal. This is an equal opportunity sport. Like there's talent that kind of dictates a lot that what we do and different backgrounds from players and how you treat them needs to be different. Now it needs to be fair, but I think too many rules can get a little bit dicey for coaches. Just got to be cognizant of that. Within those standards you put are then the punishments that follow. So if you say like, hey, we don't be late, but then people, someone shows up late, do the punishments have to be defined as well? That if they're one minute, five minutes, it's this. 
I mean, obviously not everyone's at an MBA or an organization, but if you're in college or high school, do the punishments then have to be more defined with the standards? I think so in college. Like it's tough now because so many coaches are worried about the transfer and you can just go wherever. And I think coaches dance around it now and don't want to discipline the players. But I think the ones that can handle the discipline are going to help you win anyways. So I think there's a dance that you got to play a little bit, but if there are standards that you have bought, like, hey, you're not going to be late for anything, and the second you're late, they need to know what that is. You're going to sit the next game, or you're going to you know, sit the quarter, or you know, you got to run after practice, or you got to do community start, whatever it might be. But you need to be consistent in that message because the second you let off your foot compared to you know player three through ten, it might be a little bit different. But everybody needs to be held to that standard for sure. Jimmy, just to follow up to these standards, the better teams that you've been around that have had great standards. Are they player driven or are they more top down coach driven throughout the organization? 100% player. You know, we've had a great team in Long Island a few years ago and never had an issue. The whole like culture buzzword, like that you hear a lot about and stuff like that. My whole thing is if you have good people in your organization, whether it's players, staff, things kind of take care of itself. And players that want to win and do it the right way, if, especially if they're your best players, they're going to keep people in line. The second someone steps out of line, like, Either the player doesn't step in or the coach needs to, but definitely player driven from my experience. And I think we need to keep it in mind. It's a player's game and understand that, you know, yeah. if they want to win this thing, you know, you got to you know, uphold the standards for everybody. Being on a G League roster with more player turnover and the roster is changing. What is the process to get to those standards when yeah, every season, maybe there's new guys and different leaders? How long does it take then to get, okay, these are the standards we're going to value? I think it's important to much like recruiting in college, like you're trying to bring in people that fit everything you do. You know, when they come in, I think the beautiful thing about the G League, which I love as a whole, is players are there to get better and they don't want to stay there. And that's fine. Your goal is to be the NBA or or to go to EuroLeague and make a lot more money. But, you know, the second you step out of line, like no contract is guaranteed. So that's the beautiful part of it. Like these guys got to come in, buy into what we're you know, trying to do as a team and as, as an organization to do it the right way. And I've loved it even hearing from like other coaches around the league, just because it's coaching almost purity. Like I loved the division three because these guys are playing for the love of the game, not really expectations to make a lot of money playing in the NBA, but because they love the game and these guys are so close, they're willing to adapt to any situation and try to, you know, prolong their career. And that's honestly why I really love the G League. Jimmy, kind of moving into a little bit more of a tactical conversation And you mentioned it just a couple of minutes ago about scouting reports. And we'd like to talk to you about that now because it's maybe something that coaches we love so much. Players don't want any part of the scouting reports and there's this meeting in the middle somewhere. And I know it's something that you've thought a lot about. You've actually written a book about it. So to start your general philosophy on what a really good, efficient scouting report looks like. As I've evolved, or hopefully evolved as a coach, I guess I got older as coaching as I go, but I think the material that they need to understand, I want it to all be absorbed. So I'd rather give them 10 pieces of information and then get all 10 and wanting more than give them 30 and then miss 18 of them. And then be like, oh man, like, you know, I knew the material, but you know, the players need to gather all that information. I think that's the most important thing. And I think we as coaches will give a scouting report to the team but it's more like an evaluation of the players you're about to play. It's like, oh, you know, he's pretty good going right. Like he wants to do this. He's a pretty good athlete. And for me, it's just like, that doesn't help the player that matches up with him, how he's going to slow him down or stop him. It's going to be like, no, no, no. In ball screen situations, we're going under. It's 
chase him off the line and shoot him threes. To me, it's all needs to be actionable. It can't just be vague. You know, we're not writing a complete narrative on this guy of this is his breakdown that you see on ESPN. No, no, no. Let's give three things we're going to do for this guy. You know what I mean? Like, hey, let's jam him on rebounds and transition, keep him off the glass, and then put him in pick and rolls. All three things can be pretty important for that player. That's my biggest takeaway is make it actionable versus, you know, just writing a report on this guy. Are the players retraining it more if, if you give them the piece of paper and it's just quick bullets or I know you do both, but what seems to have the biggest transference video showing them like, Hey, this is why we need to, like I said, box them out in transition, or is it just a quick verb or maybe a text message that you're sending them? I try to keep it very consistent with everything I do with them. Like I send out usually a paper scout that they'll get a video as well. And my bullet points will follow along with the video. It's not going to be one to nine to four. It's going to be right in order. Like, hey, this is their point guard, starting point guard, and transition this to what it looks like, and pick and roll, and shooting the ball. And those bullet points are going to be the same thing. Like, coast to coast, likes to attack, blah, 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 blah. Pick and roll situations, looking to get downhill to his right hand. Like, you know, we want to go under on these to prevent the drives. Pitch and shoot situations, he's shooting 42%. Let's chase him off the line. And the bullet points on the video will match exactly what's going across. They've seen it on video. They watch the player do it. They've seen it on the paper as well. You know, hopefully then they hear us talking about it too. Everybody learns differently. And I think if you have a consistent message, it's much more likely to get, you know, retained. Yeah. Jimmy, just because I think that this is a subject from high school all the way on up that coaches grapple with all the time with how much and what to say and all that. Maybe if we get specific for a moment, not about a particular player, but like if the other team has a tremendous shooter, when you go to give the scouting report to your team about a guy who's a tremendous shooter, like what are the bullet points that you actually, you know, would put on there so those they, they know he's a shooter and don't look over you after he makes two threes going, oh, is he a shooter? It's funny. I think it's the biggest thing. Like some guys that can really shoot an elite level, that's pretty much all they want to do. And then, you know, they got marginally like ability to finish the rim. But if, you know, you force one of these elite shooters, no matter what level it's at to the rim, that's a win. And so for me, like it might be a little corny, but I would put a flame emoji on the video and on the scouting report. That's all I would have, just like a flame. And then on the clips on the video, it literally shows the flame. It ignites on the whole screen and it shows him like three threes and it lasts like two seconds. It's just like, boom, boom, boom. All right, we got it. Like everyone good. Like you see the flame on the sheet. We don't need to talk about this. Anymore. He gets no threes. And then the players are amped up to cover him because hey, coach said he, like, all he can do is shoot. And so then they start every time he catches the ball, it's like, boom, hand above the ball. You're not going to shoot this thing. So for me, that's a win for those guys. Like they can do a little bit of everything, like might be a little bit different, but if I can force that guy to do something he's uncomfortable doing, and I think you never want to pull the reins like trying to amp them up a little bit. I, I'd rather pull back a little bit. Like now if that guy could drive to the rim a little bit, you know, we were all up pressure on that guy. Great. But from the jump, I want that guy to feel uncomfortable every time he catches the ball. Speaking on the, you know, given just the flame emojis, what role do well analytics or giving them stats? Do the players care? Does it do anything to say, oh, flame emoji and he's 45%? That's a really tricky thing, I think, with stats. Because a lot of times you see a guy, shoot, you know, he's 41% and you're like, he only takes, you know, 1.1 a game. Then you see a guy that's like 34% and you're like, well, yeah, he takes nine a game. And those are on the move. And the defense knows he's a shooter. So I think you need to be like, that's where I think kind of a clash between coaches and the numbers kind of arise from because, you know, doesn't really pass the eye test for someone like, yeah, he's catching, shooting in an open gym. Nobody's contesting, you know, 41% on one attempt a game. Well, you know, another guy that's flying off that thing, I think you need to kind of understand 
it can, I don't want to say it bites you, but if a player makes a three and your coach, you know, told him that he wasn't a shooter and he looks at, he's like, Hey, like coach, like you just hit one. We're like, all right, we're good. We're good. Like, you know, at some point you got to adjust, but for the better part, I think, you know, that's what we get paid to do is make those decisions as coaches to be like, no, we're treating him as a shooter, even though the percentage is a little bit different. That's where there's a fine line at times at adjustments. And that's a really big conversation that I always have with a lot of people is when you make the adjustment and when you stick to your guns, sometimes you bite the bullet and sometimes you get to tip your cap a little bit. Then my follow-up too, is we've talked obviously about like the player scouting. What about the team tactics, their plays they run or their, you know, what are you giving the players and how much are you giving them of the overall team philosophy? So I think it varies at different levels. I think a lot of coaches get caught up into this is what they're running. This is what they do. And like, you know, you go through your walkthrough and your scout team is running the flex. It bothers me is because we're like, well, you know, we're in game 20 and we don't know how to defend the flex. Like, what are we doing? You need to understand where you can spend your time. So for me, it's trying to find those situations that are unique to that team. Like you said, like, what are they doing? And some teams, you know, like they don't want to take mid-range shots. Well, all right, well, that's cool. Like we're going to chase them with a three-point line. And we're, you know, we're going to pack the paint and we're not going to try to live, live in that in between. So when I watch something, it needs to be something we either never talked about or specific to a personnel. Like, hey, they run a staggering transition. Well, I'm not going to show a, a stagger. We know how to, you know, we can lock and trail. We're going to chase the shooter. Or you're going to shoot the gap on a driver. But then it's like, well, this is a special player. After he comes off the stagger, this is what they're getting into. They're getting into high splits. For us, then it's, all right, you know, you got to be really, really aware of when they get to high splits, now what? And that's where it all begins to me. And so it's like the layering piece of this thing. Some teams like to get creative and stuff. And then you got to figure, you know, how often are they going to actually run this stuff? And, you know, you don't want to show your team an ATL because they might not run it. And it becomes much more conceptual, like, you know, you're playing against a team that's an elite score. You scored like 35 a game, which isn't too uncommon in the G League. And you're like, all right, well, what's our base like shell going to look like when that guy has the ball? He's going to get 40 touches this game. We got to make sure our low man is loaded up, ready to come, and our rotations are ready to go at any point. And so sometimes it can be some X's and O's. But like to give you an idea, I think in my three years I've been an assistant, I've covered one sideline or baseline out of bounds play because our base coverage can handle all that stuff. Like, what are they going to run? Screen the screener? They're going to slip right. it? Like, and you know, you hopefully that your groundwork that you did in training camp and all that stuff takes care of it all. But the players are going to be like, oh, you know, cool. You know, screen the screener. All right. Well, if they score on it, well, that's just bad defense. There's nothing special. So sure. I try to be very aware of like their time at all. Let's figure out what's going to really. If we lose the game, how are we going to lose the game? Let's spend our time trying to focus on those aspects. Well, I'd like to dig in. And you mentioned it a little bit, but your process in terms of putting together a scout sheet. So how many games do you like to watch? Do you like to watch full games? Do you like to watch clips? And how, like you said, how often do they have to run it for you to think it's important enough to put down or a player's attribute? How often does he have to do something? I mean, obviously he's touching the ball 40 times. Like then it makes it in. What makes the cut? Yes. So my process, I guess I'm probably watching around five games in a regular season, like the last five. It depends how closely my scouts are together. Like very rarely it happened a couple of years ago where I had back to back on Friday, Saturday. So that was a unique circumstance. But generally I want to watch five games. I kind of build up my schedule to know when they play live, I'll watch it the next morning because then I can download it and get it right into like sports code and be able to watch it. But I do watch the whole game and basically every clip pretty much goes into some type of folder and it gets filtered one way. So I'll have like an offensive one, a defensive one, and then personnel as well. And so I'll flag all my stuff going through that stuff. So 
I'll be like, oh, you know, they're running made shot offense. They're running delay or pistol and kind of go through there and kind of alphabetize it. And my whole process, I'll have about 250-ish offensive clips similar to defense as well. And I'll have all the chunk of information. And it's kind of gets, you know, since the alphabetized, I kind of know what most frequency is up there. And then it's much more for me divvying like, all right, this is all their pick and roll coverage. This is all their, their shell rotation rules and so on and so forth. Offensively, it's transition. It's, you know, their half court sets, sideline out, baseline out. And then you get your special situations, which I try to spend a lot of time on because I think that's at least where we can have some effect on the game if we know what the other team's going to do in, in the game. But then it's, you know, going from 250 clips down to maybe 30 for each offense and defense, and then maybe 10 for offense and defense. I try to make that whole edit roughly like three and a half minutes to give you an idea. Offense, defense that we're going to cover with the team, it's probably two minutes on offense, minute and a half of their defense. And their defense is going to be very specific to what they do and tied into them playing against teams that run similar actions as we do. Okay. So it's not just like, hey, like, this is how they defend staggers. No, like this is how they defend our action. And this is what we're trying to get out of it. So you can see it and paint that picture visually. And then, you know, take that to the floor when we go through our walkthrough and shoot around. Like these are the drills that we're doing today to develop that muscle memory for tonight. So, you know, when you come off that pick and roll, like that pass automatically needs to go to the corner, expect the rotation, one more pass. That's the shot we're going to get. And so you're trying to develop confidence in these guys to make it. So it's not even, you know, second nature. With the defensive scout, is it more than team coverage or how much are you giving them as terms of like specific players and what they do on defense? Great question. That's where I really tried to figure out like the next layer. Like, yes, like I try to know their defense as if their coach taught it to the players. Like I want to know, you know, what does their nail help look like? Are they only at the nail because the personnel they're covering or is it because that's where the coach wants them at all times? And so you can try to figure all that part out. And then for me, it's like, almost ranking their defenders of where we can get them. Like if we're going to run a pick and roll, who are we putting in the pick and roll? Which guy is screenable? Which big guy doesn't move well laterally? Who can we bait? And then it's, all right, we're going to make their smallest person on the court, the low man, because then he can't get to the lob if we're going to throw that on the pick and roll. And then, or vice versa. Like we know they have heavy nail pressure on a drive from the left slot going to the middle. Well, let's put our best shooter at the top of the key. And then you're starting to think about the next level, like, oh, he can't, you know, stunt recovery. He's too small. So, you know, either we're going to get the drive and get to the rim or it's going to be kicked to the top of the key and shot. So I think that's where we try, or at least for me, like try to do the homework way ahead of time. And then it's figuring out like, what can we run to get that guard into that spot defensively where they can't really hide them. And it's real time. It's got to be like, all right, well, you know, empty corner pick and roll. How do we get to that with what we run? And that shooter get him in that you know, top of the key. Well, all right, well, let's run pistol chase. Get the point guard back the ball, empty corner, come off that thing. If he helps, boom, shot. And we'll work on that. The players don't understand like what we're working on. They just point, like, oh, we're running pistol. You know what I mean? Cool. But for me, I'm like, yes, like kick it right there and shoot it every time. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. and when they get in the game, we're like, all right, you know, great. They understand it at this point. It's the little details that hopefully add up. By the way, Penn, I love these kinds of conversations. So this is like right into the nitty gritty with all this stuff. So this is great, coach. <laughs> My question with the scouting report and getting your team and players ready is always the balance of, let's say you play a game on a Wednesday and then you're playing again on a Friday. You got one practice day in between. Let's say you got an hour and a half to two hours and then maybe a walk through the day of the game. The balance of preparing your team for 
the best players on the other team, say a great player, or just their overall team concept? You know, what do you walk through? What do you focus on so that they're ready to play against the whole team, but then also knowing how to guard, you know, maybe a great player a day out? I think that's the balance. I think, especially at the NBA level with the back-to-backs, you need to really weigh it. Like if you have two days off between a game, then you got a back-to-back, it's I don't want to say it has to be completely different, but you got to be very, very efficient with what you give to the players for that one day in preparation. You got to figure out, are we going to get on the court for that day for the walkthrough? Because if you can, then it's going to be less about the day before. That next day might be cleaning up things that you needed to get better at from that last game. And a little bit maybe touched upon just to get it in the ear a little bit for the next game. So maybe they run a lot of like, you know, they come off like a flex cut a lot and they post up their guards and we haven't seen it in a while. Like our shell needs to work on some things. Let's post up a guard in this, talk about some things, not fouling. They'll see it on film that night. And then uh, we'll talk about the next morning, kind of dummy through what actually they're running. So I think depending on that scenario, you know, I think you want to put a little bit of a bug in their ear to get them thinking a little bit, but like, all right, why are we, you know, there's going to be a reason why we're posting up some guards here. We haven't seen that in forever. So being strategic in those situations is great. And I think you want to add, you know, say that team that you played the night before, like, you know, ran a bunch of staggers and curled it. Well, all right, we're going to run a stagger, curl it to a post up, even though it's not the action that we're going to see. It's kind of, let's save as much time as we can, as much legs as we can. We're still covering, you know, what we were poor at last night while still preparing for the next game. I think that's, we spend a lot of time on trying to condense four hours worth of work and, you know, 45 minutes and try to figure it out. Coach, we talked earlier about being able to defend multiple situations so you don't have to run through their sets. But now on offense, like you said, when they get heavy nail help, we want to put a shooter here or you want to post up. So how important is to have flexibility within your offense or to put in these situations so it's just you can make these minor tweaks that'll give you major success, but not blow the minds of your players? I think that's the beauty of it. I think like I love plays that look intricate and that work and that look beautiful. Like I do, like I always have, that's been something I've really enjoyed watching, especially the like European basketball and high level colleges that execute. But for me at this level, it's can we get a ball screen, any spot on the floor, whether it's in the slot, middle corners, you know, the elbows, the logo, whatever it is with empty corner. Can we get one person behind the ball, two person behind the ball? The players don't necessarily need to know that, but if we know we have all these in our arsenal, we know like, all right, this team's going to really struggle with a single side shape because how they defend it. Well, what do we have in our package? All right, cool. We got these eight things we can do. Cool. On every free throw and every dead ball and stuff that we draw up, it's going to be all attacking that stuff. But in the flow of the game, we're going to just kind of let them play, like let them be free. We're not going to, you know, handcuff them a little bit, but you know, those situations you've got to be I think when you can control it to give yourself a chance to, I don't know what our points for possession were in the half court on like a made shot, maybe it's like 0.9, but if, if you can get it to like 0.99 or something like that and give your team that little edge, I think it's worth it. And I think that's where a lot of coaches, I think, be like, oh, you know, players, your players are going to make plays and stuff like that. But I think you've got to be able to give them a little bit of an advantage if you can. you got to find out where that defense is weak. And when you can understand the rotations, it's like, all right, might be just come down and drag the ball screen because you can get right into it. And it's just like, hey, let's come off a drag and play the second side and, you know, flow from there, see what we can do and just get the defense moving a little bit. And then whatever you flow to at the end of the clock, that's also another piece of it. I think that people think, oh, yeah, go high middle ball screen. Well, what about the high middle ball screen is going to generate a shot for you? Yep. You know, everybody does it, but they don't think the why. Coach, we've talked a lot about what you're giving to the players, how you're preparing the players with the scout and getting the team ready. And I know that the head coach is 
likely going to be involved in a lot of the meetings and helping develop the scouting report. But what's the difference between what you give the players in a scouting report and what you maybe end up giving the head coach? So that same situation, they don't need unneeded information in their brain. They have enough going on in there. So they appreciate the scouting report, but also they get what they need. I think that's our job as a coach is to make our head coach look great. So no matter what my title has been, it's like, what can I do to make my boss's job as easy as possible? If it's my scout, he's not having to be like, oh man, I'm going to have to worry about what they're going to do or whatever. I give them basically, like I said, you know, I have 250 clips offense and defense and I'll whittle it down to probably 10 to 12 minutes worth of material. I'm like, if you just watch this, you'll know everything about this team that they run and what their defense looks like. And sometimes it can be a little bit longer, sometimes a little bit shorter, but majority of the time they're going to have a little bit of feel for them too. But I want them to understand we're covered. Like this is, you know, kind of what they're coming down into. I don't want them to be any surprises. And then I'll also do like an end of games type of situation where it's everything that the coach has ever run and just say, Hey, if you want it, you can check it out. And I love stealing that stuff too. So that's why I love, like I watch all their stuff. I'm like, all right, what do you guys run? All right. I'm going to put that in my back pocket too. Yeah. So I love giving this stuff to the coach, especially given material on their defense and being like, this is how teams are really attacking it and just give them food for thought. Be like, Hey, like, Let's think about running more of this stuff this game. You know, if you're going to run an ATO, you know, maybe add this action because I think they struggle with it. Just trying to remove as much indecision from them and you know, allowing them to just focus on big picture what they need to do to get the team ready. And the scouting report is going to be the scouting report and whatever they want in there is going to be in there for sure. Yeah. But I want to have them feel like, you know, there's nothing that's going to happen that like, oh man, we blew this one. A little tangent here because you said something that was really interesting. End of game timeouts, you're on defense. And you have all of these plays in your head and on film that you know that this other coach maybe has run before. What are you communicating to your defense at that point? Because I think you really don't quite know what they're going to run, but you maybe know a few actions that they love. So what are you telling them late game so that they're not overthinking it, but they're also prepared for what might be run? That's the beauty of it. I think I've learned that. Like, Don't tell the team what you think they're going to do. Like, cause that's then all of a sudden, if it's wrong, like you just lost a lot of credibility. And so you need to be ultimately sure that they're going to go to something. So for me to like answer your question about like, how are you conveying that message? I wait till I start to see the formation start to happen. And I think with some of my veteran players I've worked with, I can just kind of cue them a little bit like, Hey, it kind of looks like their box hit. Usually when the bigs at the elbow, they're going to zip with the guy up and that's where everything happens. And you kind of understand, like, you're trying to find the minuscule detail. Like, the coach loves to get the guy the ball, and then they run their action. It's not an action off the first pass. So I'll be like, hey, like, I'll tell him, like, hey, zipper, deny it. Like, blow it up. And, like, I'm whispering, not whispering to him, so he locks eyes with me. And then all of a sudden, he's just taking that play away. And then all of a sudden, they got to get into something else. Now, the other four players in the court don't need to know. I think you need to really focus on you know, you got to do your homework and it can't just be guessing. Cause if they just throw it to the big and this guy's top locking it and they throw it over the top, it's a layup and you're going to be like, Oh man, like I blew that. Like, you don't, you don't want to be that coach. Sure. So you're trying to find those, you know, commonalities. The teams that you really struggle with are every formation is the same and it's really disguised. Jimmy on that, how in these late game, but even during the game, when you have these quick coaching huddles before he approaches the team, how is your communication to the head coach? How are you filtering or streamlining, getting your thoughts across and being precise so he can get it and decide what to do with it? I think you need to be very aware of what the coach needs to hear in that moment. If you're on a run and you're scoring the ball and things you're getting stops defensively, you probably don't want to say like, hey, let's get our you know 11th man in the game. It's going to be like, no, no, no. Like, hey, we're doing a great job boxing on the glass. We're getting out and running, pushing the ball ahead. Like, 
all right, cool. I don't need to say that. Somebody else is probably going to say it. I'm not going to bite my tongue right now. For me, like I handle a lot of like the in-game stuff. So, you know, if we have fouls to give and, you know, we only have one foul, we're coming up, you know, it's 240 on the clock. There's a timeout. We can burn three fouls. The next minute, like, that's the time now we're like, hey, let's try to turn up our aggressiveness. And, you know, who cares if we get a foul? We have three more to give. And it's those situations where understanding what your role is and where you can contribute that's going to be most beneficial. So for that situation, it might be more important for me to say something and then others, I'm just going to, you know, be quiet, listen to what other people have to say that, you know, they're part of the game that they're focusing on might take precedent. So I think it's an important point you made there. So just to kind of drive it home, the importance that the head coach places then on the assistance for in-game roles. So like you said, you know, when, yeah, this is my situation, my time to speak and not four coaches or two just kind of going everyone going back and forth. I think if you can, you know, separate, I don't even know how to say offense, defense, but even like, you know, rebounding transition or offensive execution, and then, you know, time and score situations or situations in general, if, you know, that head coach of that situation has something important, you know, hopefully they speak up in the moment. You know, we're obviously, you're at the point where you've gotten better with your scouting report and you continue to perfect it, but in your process, as you've come along, when you look back, basically your post-game analysis of your scouting report, what were maybe some of the early mistakes you were making or how you continue to refine it when you look back and realize like, I missed this or I needed to do this? What's been your process there post-game? What I've found over the time is what I've gotten better with is just removing words. And like, you know, go from five bullet points that has like 60 words in a guy's like box of stuff to go into three bullet points and 12 words. So it's removing the fluff. Like, Let's cut it down. Let's cut it down. Can we shrink anything else from this situation? And it kind of goes back to your point earlier about statistics. You see a lot of scouting reports, people put in their free throw percentage for the other team. Like, well, you shoot 71%. Well, what does that tell you? <laughs> are we going to intentionally follow them? Or are we not trying to follow them? Like, it's not like, you know, he averages 0.3 steals a game. Well, that's not important. So I don't even want that on my sheet. So that won't even make it onto mine. So it's trying to eliminate the distractions. Everything they see on there needs to be probably absorbed by everybody. So if a guy shoots 43% from the free throw line, that's going to make it on my sheet because if he goes up for a layup and he doesn't get fouled, I'm going to be pretty upset because, you know, those are situations you can kind of control. So I think I've looked back and it's like less is more and really less, less. <laughs> and I think yeah, yeah. the more I can do that, I'm still going through it, talking about the actionable piece and removing unnecessary adjectives in there. That's just like, all right, you know, I think we can all keep doing a better job with it. Yep. I'm trying to learn. I asked the coaches, like, how was my message delivered? Like, do you think they got it? Do you, you know, I think we all need to take criticism. That's how I try to look back at it. I'm like, oh, you know, we didn't follow that guy. Maybe I didn't, you know, maybe it wasn't in the video of hacking this guy and maybe I should make the video next time. So I'm really hypercritical of those things. We've talked about the scan report and everything kind of before the game. How about how much of the information that you have on the scouting report should or does make it onto, say, the whiteboard while you're in the locker room before the game, before they go out onto the floor? Is it the same stuff? I've seen whiteboards, three whiteboards full of like a, you know, a novel. You know, they need to have a quick reminder and go up. So what do you have on that whiteboard? I think it needs to be the, almost the same thing. This is where I try to be consistent. So understanding, you know, go through the starting lineup, match up our starters, like who you got who. And then I'll be like, you know, Jalen, you got so-and-so, right-hand driver, we're going under on all pick and rolls. Chris, you got shooter, no threes. And it was have like a flame. Like, I'm, you know, that's all we got. Like, and so yeah. it's just reinforcing the major point and then 
you know, going from there, I had a player that used to write on his hand the shooter's numbers on the court. So if you just see, like, he guy checks in the game, he just looks at his hand, like, shooter. All right, cool. Got him. Like, we're good. So I think it's important to understand those things that, you know, they're getting ready for the game. They don't need to see up on the board, compete, play hard. Like, you know, hopefully they already understand we're playing this game. We're hopefully going to compete. We're not just going to go out there. Like, coach didn't say compete today. We're not going to do that. So, you know, yeah. I, I want to save your bullets as much as possible. The whiteboards are a good invention for a place for coaches to put their nervous energy before a game. Oh, just write no a bunch question. of stuff. <laughs> I've done that myself too many times. We all have, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Jimmy, names or numbers, what sticks more with the players in those pregames? Like I know all the players. And especially in the G League, I think players don't know the other players because they can come from overseas, they can yeah. college, they could be bouncing back from anywhere. So what I try to do now too is even in my video stuff, I'll put a headshot on there on the video because some of these guys have never seen them. Like you got a headshot, you got their full name, you got their number. And I'm like, whatever sticks with you, hopefully it makes some sense. Cause some video you get is some grainy quality from division two, or they were playing in the Baltic region somewhere else. And you know, they don't even know who they're watching. They're like squinting. So that was a great thing that I got was like, put a headshot on there. The worst, you know, they can see them on the bench or they understand like, Hey, why isn't he playing or, but I'm big on trying to give them all that part. Cause I don't want them to be surprised, but like, Hey, you know, he's a shooter. And all of a sudden it's not that they thought he looked like or whatever, or, yeah. or he's wearing a different Jersey because the G league that happened. And all of a sudden like, you know, they come on bang a shot. No, that's, that's important though. Coach, this has been awesome. We'd like to shift now and play a fun game, a segment we call start sub or sit. And we will give you three basketball ish topics here and ask you to start one sub one and sit one and we can have a fun little discussion around your answers so coach if you're ready we'll dive right in here do it okay so the three of us uh, had the opportunity along with our friend menelik fernandez to uh, meet up in las vegas during the summer league and, and chat a little bit and so got us thinking about summer league and meeting coaches and whatnot in summer league so start sub sit here the best places in las vegas to meet and maybe have a conversation with a coach during the Las Vegas Summer League. The concourse between Cox and Thomas and Mac Arena at one of the various hotel bars after the games or at the craps table or roulette somewhere. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> making some money. Start, sub, sit, three places to meet and shake hands with a coach. Oh, that's great. I think in between Thomas and Mac and Cox is great. Even just you're trying to bounce from one gym to the other, you're for sure going to see somebody or somebody's going to see you and it's where you get a text or something. I think that's where I've done bulk of my talking at the time. It's definitely getting caught in there. I'm going to sit the craps table because <laughs> some people are really competitive and really want to live in the moment. And when money's involved, I don't want to, I don't want to see that at all. And then I think kind of around the hotels is probably next. And I think that's more like organized type of activities. So I'm going to sub that one. I think that's where you can really start to, like we did, like some of the other people came and joined us and sat with us too. So it's a great way to pull people in. But as yep. far as random connecting, I definitely think in between Cox and Thomas and Max got to take the start for me. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, coach, just a follow-up. I know you were there in Vegas for, was it about two weeks start to finish? Just that, that whole experience for you, I'm sure, you know, being in Las Vegas for that long, but could you just maybe talk a little bit about what the NBA Summer League has done for just the NBA in general with just a place for people to go and connect and, and watch the future of the NBA from your standpoint? Yeah, I think it, it's beautiful, man. Like it, it's kind of like, you know, the final four of the professional world, at least. And 
This year might be a little bit different because it's happened a little bit later. And usually there's a lot more international coaches that come and I know they're getting ready for their training camps and stuff as well. But just being able to connect with people from all levels, that's the great part where you, you know, you love high school coaches, college coaches, international coaches, agents, team executives, and you can never know who you're going to run into. And that's part of the coaching side that you love. And then you get to see, you know, upcoming talents and be able to evaluate in real time and kind of figure out what the next wave of players is going to look like and start to develop relationships early in the process with players that you might coach. And that to me, you know, hopefully you get to know these guys for the next 15 years or so and see their journey and see where it takes them. And being a part of their first step can be gratifying in the long run. I know for coaches, it's a lot of fun. For fans too, it's an unbelievable experience going to see the games back and forth. Just a, a great time out there. Oh, yeah. Jimmy, going back to the relationship or forming relationships, we all know it's it's an important part of this business. And it's hard when you don't have kind of like that in or that connector, you know someone. And I know you've been on both ends of it. So what would be your advice to a young coach in forming relationships or just at the very least, like a positive impression with coaches? I think a lot of young coaches up and coming expect that, you know, the seeds that you plant are going to immediately blossom when you start developing a relationship with somebody. And it's not really the case. And definitely wasn't for me. And it can happen. I'm not saying it can't happen, but guys that you meet now are probably going to be able to help you in eight to 10 years. Like how many people have you met over the time that are ahead of that person in line and people that you're willing to help? It's just human nature, right? Like the longer you know somebody, the more you're going to be willing to help. So I think it's important to keep that in mind where just because you reached out to somebody on LinkedIn a week before summer league, you can't expect that like, Hey, he's going to get me a job. Like you got to be a little bit realistic in the sense that maybe he's going to take some time to talk to me, get to know me a little bit. And, you know, hopefully this thing fosters over time. I think a pitfall that people run into is they're so eager to tell you about themselves. Like I've been here, I've done this. I work with so-and-so I work with so-and-so. I think it's important just to listen first and just kind of, you know, I'm so-and-so I'm here you know, I'd love to connect and get to know you and, and kind of hear whoever you wanted to connect with their story, you know, then you can go from there because I've seen horror stories on the other side of it where someone just stops somebody and speaks for eight straight minutes. And they're like, man, like I couldn't wait to get out of that conversation. And you feel bad because their intentions yeah. were good. They just didn't know better. And so yeah, you can give the benefit of the doubt for sure. And maybe it's nervous energy and, you know, you get a little bit of everything, but listening more than talking is really, really important. So me and Pat chasing guys down by the Bellagio probably wasn't <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> Across the crosswalks. The microphone in hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, coach. My start subset is complimentary defensive traits or skills that you value in your guards. So start sub or sit. Steals, charges, but off-ball charges. So sliding over or post defender? Man, typically I would sit post defense, but being a part of a team that switches everything, that's pretty important. Man, I'm going to start steals because I you can scheme a team to cause more turnovers, but nothing makes up for like a really good defender that can you know just pluck somebody. I've seen it. They can change the tide of a game. That to me would definitely take precedent over the others. I'm going to sit post-defense surprisingly in a, in a system that switches defensively. I think it's important to understand how to play behind a big or front the big and understand where the help's coming from. And the better you can do that, the more efficient we're going to be defensively. 
charges scare the hell out of me, man. I'm afraid of guys getting hurt. So uh, if I could remove charges, I, I would definitely do, especially with some of these high level athletes. But I love seeing like players like Kyle Lowry step in and take charges. Like that's amazing putting your body on the line. I probably in the past six, six months ago, I probably would have switched my answer, but that's what I got right now. So. With steals, what do you see from guards that are good at generating steals? I don't think you can teach it, but you can see it. What I found is somebody that I evaluated before and that we actually coached, their anticipation of when the pass is going to be made or when the ball leaves their hand to dribble, they have like such fast reflexes. They know when to go in for it. And like the risk reward, they can reduce the risk. And I think those guys that can still try to gamble and still recover and know when to like steal a pass or like, you know, they hear the team call, hey, run through. And they know that first pass is going to the wing and they kind of baiting it, baiting it and dropping back. And then they jump the passing lane quickly. So it's a little bit of IQ, but a lot of it's feel and understanding like, can I use my wingspan, my length, my instincts to put myself in position to get a few of these. You mentioned the risk reward. I guess, what are maybe some of the signs when it is fool's gold? We're like, yeah, he gets steals, but he's, he can't recover. He's guarding no yeah. one. I guess what, what would be the red flags to be like, maybe we shouldn't rely on this steal stat. Man, that's a tricky line. Like, I, I think it falls the same line of where you don't want to remove some of the home run power that some of these guys have, where they get one steal, transition dunk, turns the tide, and then all of a sudden they gamble one time out of the corner. It's a backdoor layup, and you're like, man, that's deflating. It's a tricky balance. And some of those guys are generally volatile, like high energy and, you know, flying around. And I think we all know those type of guys. And it's just like, you, don't want to let the dog off the leash too far, but you know, sometimes he's going to get it. Sometimes he's going to get burnt. And I think you can't let them destroy your defensive principle. So if we're talking about defending this pin down and you're trying to deny it on a non-shooter and he backdoors you for a layup, it's like, well, look, man, like that's not the one, you know, now if it's a shooter and you're trying to blow it up and then you try to go in the passing lane, I get it. So as long as it's not overriding our principles defensively, I think you got to live with it. But the second it compromises the rest of the four guys, that's where you got to be like, all right, you got to tone it down a little bit. For sure. Coach, we're going to move to next start, sub or sit. We've talked a lot about great assistant coaching traits or things you can do to help your staff. We're going to flip it to the other side of the coin now here. And these are assistant coaching traits that will either get you fired or not get you hired. So uh, you're going to start, sub, sit. Start will be like the worst one. Worst. Okay. Okay. So start, sub, sit. The Monday morning quarterback assistant coach who has all the answers after the game and, and wants to tell everybody about what they should or shouldn't have done. The moody or grumpy, just consistently bad mood assistant coach. Or the assistant coach with unhealthy boundaries between players and staff. So just maybe too much of a friend or not understanding the professionalism that needs to take place. So start, sub, sit, those three traits. I want to start all three of them. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, I'm going to start the moody one. I think your energy of what you bring needs to bring something to the table every day. Like you can't be an up and down guy. You got to be an everyday guy. And I think the head coach needs that. I've been around a lot of first time head coaches and they don't need to deal with emotions from us. I think that's important for them to expect out of their staff that they're going to be you know, encouraging, come with ideas and you can't be, you know, we lost last night being in a bad mood. Like I can't live that way. It's like um, everybody hates losing, but pro game, you know, every team loses. So it, it kind of is what it is. <sighs> sit. Oh, sit, man. This is tough. It's like having an all-star <laughs> team, man. <laughs> yeah. The I'm going to sit the Monday morning quarterback because I think we can all read like what went wrong, right? You don't want to come in with, oh, this is what we did wrong. This 
yeah, we got it. Like, what are we going to do to get better? Right. Like, so I, I think that's really, really important to, and it kind of goes along with the attitude type deal. Like, I don't think there's a place for that stuff. And uh, I'm going to, no, I'm going to, I'm going to sub that one. I'm going to sit the relationships with the coaches. I, I think I'll sit that one. Okay. Just because, you know, some players need more coddling and some relationships can be beneficial. Now it's, you know, not ideal when you're dealing with some players that range from 19 years old to 35 years old, there's going to be some different types of relationships that you're going to need to have, especially when there's a lot of young staff members generally in the G League too. Now you don't want to cross that line, but I think that's the least worst. That, yeah, least yeah, worst. Yeah. Of those. <laughs> okay. I want to start all three of them. I'm with you. That's uh, Man, that's tough. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, these are obviously all ones that can be inevitable throughout the course of the season, you know, but I wonder about your process with the Monday morning quarterback thing where, okay, you guys lose a game or something doesn't go right, but then you find a good way to bring suggestions or tweaks or whatever it is next day to practice when you're, or the next meeting so that it comes across, you know, the right way. I think that's really important is like always finding the light in what you're doing and like, Hey, we lost the game and you start to watch the film and immediately probably think it's not as bad you know, as you initially thought, some areas you need to clean up more than others. But I think for me, like I'll go through the film and kind of, you know, bucketize things per se. And, you know, this is what our ball screen coverage was. Hey, our ball screen defense wasn't that bad. If we just adjust this a little bit. So you're trying to find solutions in the whole mix. And I'll send my information to the head coach the day before the practice for the next one. You know, whatever he thinks about it, great. And, you know, we can talk about it. We'll watch film together as a staff before that next practice and kind of talk about what we're going to present to the team. But I think at that point, it's got to be like a clear the air. Like it already happened. Where do we go from here? Hopefully everybody understands like, Hey, our transition defense was bad. Why was it bad? Well, you know, we took a lot of open shots. We missed a lot of open ones, some bad bounces. Yeah, for sure. But let's show these three clips of our guys not sprinting back in transition. That's going to drive home the message pretty quickly. We don't need to hit it again. Great. Let's move on. Show our team like, Hey, you know, in game, we told you guys pick and roll defense was terrible. We went back and watched the film. We were wrong. Like they made some tough shots. It was what it was. We thought we did a good job. Could we do a little bit better? Sure. But like at the end of the day, that's not why we lost. And so I think you're trying to spin it a little bit and try to understand what really beat you. I think for us as assistants, you know, you don't want to create an opinion. You just want it to be factual and let the head coach decide what he wants to present. And you're there to back him up on the way. All right, Jimmy, our last start subset for you. Basically start subset how you prefer to get a shooter open, to get a shooter a shot. Pin screen, set a flare screen for him, or put him on that lift shake action on a single side pick and roll. Baseline pin or anywhere pin? It will give you anywhere pin. I'm going to go with start the pin. I think there's a lot you can do there, specifically because, say, a baseline situation, if I'm screening, if my defender even sees it, all I have to do is still screen him and I can still visually get him to screen. So I think that's probably the easiest way to do it. I'm going to sub the lift or shake part. Some teams are not going to even bother tagging the role in those situations. And that's fine because, you know, you're going to give something at the end of the day, you, you, you know, yeah. it could be something can manipulate out of it. Flare screens scare me if you're trying to get the shot. Now there's a whole lot like you flare and you slip and that's a, like, you know, that's a way to get something great. But if it's a shooter and you need a three at the end of the game and they see a flare, two defenders are going to probably be able to go with the shooter. I think it creates some, trickiness with a screener's man is going to be back there and he can see that passing flight and he's going to go and he's going to take that guy away. 
So if I need something in desperation, I'm probably going to go something where come off straight off a pin down and get that shot. But if they want to switch this thing, that guy knows he can screen his own man. I think that's going to be beneficial too. I think this is a really interesting conversation because obviously it depends on the type of shooter that's going to be in these actions because all these actions require different type of footwork yes. for the shooter. And the flare sometimes can be the most difficult one for a shooter to get their momentum going back to the rim. So how much, I guess, for you as a coach, if you're designing something, even if maybe you say you love the flare as an action, you would tend to put a shooter in a certain spot just because of the level of footwork they may or may not have. You know, that's so important to me, like how shooters are able to get the shots they're comfortable shooting too. Like, you know, if you've got a guy and he's like, well, he shoots 40% off the move. Well, if he shoots 50 from going one direction and 33 the other way, like, you know, it's not 40, you know, there's a whole nother layer to it. So I worked with a player a few years ago. I knew our first play ATO was pretty much going to be exclusive for him. He's a shooter. And we would rep that in his pregame workout. If the footwork he was going to require to take to get that shot off, if he's covered or not, like this is going to be the footwork, the speed that you need to go at. And so so much comes down to the confidence of the guy too, right? You might run a play for, you run for the guy that shoots 40% or 35% or the guy that's really confident that, you know, like he's still going to get the shot off. Like that's just as important too. And like some guys, I think you always have the discussion where who are we giving the shot to? Well, all right, who can make the pass? And then it's like, we want the confident guy doing it or we want the guy that's kind of shaky, you know, even though the percentages dictate otherwise. Jimmy, speaking of footwork for shooters, if you're setting that pin screen, let's say you just set, the wide pin or whatever, but they cheat it. And so the shooter will, I guess, and that's a drift or flare. What kind of footwork are you teaching a shooter in terms of flaring, drifting, catching it, gathering and shooting? I think it's really important in those situations, no matter what you do, whether it's, you know, one, two in it, backpedaling, whatever it's got to be is on that catch. You can't be going backwards. Like all your momentum needs to be stopped in that moment going now projecting towards the rim. Very few people can, you know, run forward, drift, come backwards and then shoot a fadeaway out of the corner. Like that's tough. So I want to remove the variability as much as possible. So, you know, if he's in that right corner, he's coming off the pin, flares it. I don't care if he goes left, right into it off that pass or if it's right, left or even hops into it. But like at the end of the day, it's got to be when he shoots it, he can't be landing further back than when he took off from. So I think... As much as I can get my guys balanced underneath him to you know, go towards the rim, I think that's where you'll see most uh, effective results. Do we as coaches make too much of footwork for shooters? I mean, as far as playing emphasis, is it more whatever your preference is? Like you said, it's more have your balance, have your mechanics. I think it's so important just to understand of left, right, right, left. And I see all sorts of games of you know guys that like to hop into it. I'm like, yeah, it's great to hop, but are you hopping after you catch the ball? Cause then it's too late at this level. Like it's generally too late. Like if you can't go one, two at this level, it's going to be really hard to be an elite level shooter. The, all the elite ones can do everything. Now the guy, the next tier down are the ones that usually struggle in one of those areas. And you see kind of the ball dominant guys that shoot better off the dribble than they do off the catch, uh, which is a whole nother situation, but the footwork into it is all about the rhythm. So I try to develop a rhythm for these guys you know, that might be unnatural in situations like, you know, going right, left in the left slot. Well, that's a weird situation for them to do it like for a righty, but I want them to feel comfortable in understanding equal balance on their push off when they lift off to shoot the ball instead of turning and twisting and uh, how they catch the ball is important and all that stuff. I tried to really, really, at the end of the day, can I get them to be facing the rim, the pocket, the same every time, regardless of the footwork and the quicker that their feet can get down before they touch the ball, the better it is. 
Coach, I feel like the three of us could probably keep talking about flare screens and um, <laughs> moody assistant coaches for another two hours, but it'd just be the three of us talking at a certain point. So, uh, well, you're now off the start sub sit hot seat. Thank you for that. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. uh, I still want to start those three uh, for the moody yeah. coach and all that. I want to start all three of those. Man. Next summer, when coaches run into you in the concourse at Thomas and Mac, just make sure they're not yeah. moody. <laughs> they <laughs> I'm going to put a sign on my chest right here. Like, yeah, Don't be yeah. moody. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, well, before we wrap up here with this last question, thank you very much for your time today. This has been a lot of fun for Pat and I. We appreciate it. Absolutely. No, man, it's a pleasure. I thank you guys. It was great meeting you guys in person and sharing this with you. And man, maybe I got to interview you guys or something. You guys deserve <laughs> it. So, <laughs> thank you. We appreciate that. Jimmy, I know when we came on, we talked a little bit about it, but being a former player and getting into coaching and I mean, at the NBA level, right or wrong, I mean, they're still very good players, but maybe it's easier for them. I really would like to know the advantages of not being a former player and being a coach. I think former players get launched into situations probably too quickly to understand like we're coaches, right? But the topic is basketball. You're a teacher at the end of the day. That's the way I view this thing. Playing the game is a lot different than coaching the game and how you relate to players and the relationships that you build. So I think when you come up through the coaching world from a younger age, while others are still playing, you're developing skills that they're going to have to get caught up on. Now, you might not be 6'9", be able to dunk a basketball. That might be a whole different ballgame. I get it. But like how you present a scouting report, how you prepare stuff, how you run a drill, these are things that you have an advantage on. So I think when you understand and develop your ground level of coaching and you know you become good with technology and you do all the grunt work, you understand how the process of things work and how things have been done for a while in coaching. And you know, regardless of where you coached at, say if you spent eight years coaching high school, four in division three, and then you're 33 years old, the same time players retired to get into coaching when you've already been doing this for 12 years or whatever it might be, you have so much more experiences to rely on. But I think it's important as coaches pick their brains as former players to see what they're thinking. And then vice versa, like they got to pick your brain too, because they haven't gone through it, but they're so drastically different that I think that, you know, we both need to be on the same page. You're not fighting each other. We're in the same career. We're trying to make the best of this thing. So there's definitely positives and negatives to both sides. It's harder to break in as a non-player for sure. But, you know, you got to look at the advantages that you have at all times. And same way we do like a scouting report, right? You're trying to find out where you can win. It's the same thing as a coach, like, what gives you the upper hand situation if you're competing for a job, for example. Along your way, Jimmy, and using these advantages, what's been the best investment you've made in your career to help progress? I think just trying to be curious at all costs, like taking things on a whim, like going out to random events, even if you're maxing out a credit card and just being at a clinic and being around people and surrounding yourself with the people in those environments. Like I was in a situation too long ago where I was the only guy at a clinic that didn't have a name on my polo and I couldn't get a call back from a D3 GA spot. Like situations like that where, well, over time, you know, if you keep sticking to this thing, it's great. You got to be willing to dive in somewhere, like sink or swim, you know, wherever level you want to be at, you got to be all in and whatever that takes to be there. Like if you want to be in the NBA, like don't tell me you didn't go to summer league because you had something else. No, like everybody goes to summer league that wants to be in the NBA. It's just the reality of the situation. No matter what the cost is, like there's an opportunity cost for everything too. So, you know, you got to be around the people that you want to be with, you know, create circles that, you know, help you progress through this thing. I think if COVID and the pandemic taught us anything, we find new ways to connect to people, right? There's Zooms all over the place you can connect. Like, well, you said you wanted to be a coach. Well, what'd you do the last 18 months? 
well, I didn't see you on any Zooms. I didn't see you posting anything. I didn't see you posting plays on Twitter. I didn't like my ears are open to all that. I have a list now of if I became a head coach tomorrow, these are my top 50 video guys. These are my top, you know, 100 assistant coaches. And I'm constantly making notes like, like this person, I see this person everywhere. Like I'm bumping into them in person. I'm seeing them at a clinic. I see them posting notes. I see them talking on the show. I see them talking about slapping glass. I'm like, like I want to be surrounded with those people at all times that are serious about this business. It's not just, you know, I'm in this because I don't know what else to do. You know, I think you got to really bet on yourself. And I love people that share information. That's why, obviously, like what you guys do is awesome because, you know, the more that we can do to grow this game, the more if I give all my information away to everybody, whatever it might be, it's going to force me to grow too. And I expect that from people I stay connected with. Like, send me everything you have. I'll send you everything I have. We're going to keep, you know, share this dialogue, keep growing. We need to be in this long haul to be the best that we can be and push each other and push the game in the right direction. so much for tuning in to this episode with coach jimmy oakman please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the membership free newsletter videos and more have a great week coaching and we'll see you next time on slapping glass Ooh, do we have a name yet for this thing i have like slapping backboard <laughs> slapping glass <laughs> slapping glass that's kind of funny i like that's that good. those are all <laughs> slapping glass <laughs>